Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, and after 20 years in this industry, I'm excited to bring you perspectives on major issues of the moment to challenge your thinking and to help you set in place strategies and capabilities to drive performance so that together we can advance global health. Transforming Biopharma by ZS covers a variety of perspectives on the topic shaping health and their implications, featuring industry leaders who are pushing the boundaries and redesigning the future. Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, Principal at ZS, and this episode is part of our series on the future of healthcare. Today, we're talking with Dr. Linda Hill. Dr. Hill is the Wallace Brett Donham Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School and Chair of the Leadership Initiative. She's the co-author of Collective Genius, The Art of Practice of Leading Innovation and Being the Boss, Three Imperatives for Becoming a Great Leader. Dr. Hill is a keynote speaker here at ZS's 2022 Impact Summit, and we're talking live at the meeting in Boston. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. So at CS, Linda, we're talking a lot about connected health and what it might look like in the future. You've written so many guiding principles for organizations who are going through digital transformation, things like aligning customer-centric narratives, building data-informed cultures. How do you apply those principles more broadly to an industry like healthcare? I think there's lots of opportunity in healthcare. Digital really, digital tools and data are really enablers of organizations to be able to deliver value to patients. And so I think in that regard, it is a place where we can see all kinds of opportunities, both to improve the customer experience, the end-to-end experience, i.e. the patient experience, and also to really cut costs and be more efficient about what we do because we know that the cost structure of healthcare in many countries is not what it needs to be if we're going to create more access for more, for more people. You know, you mentioned the cost, and we've been seeing that 24% of patients uh, avoid their healthcare because of cost. And another 24% actually avoid it because it's a hassle. And when you look globally, we studied, um, you know, UK, Germany, Sweden, China, Japan, all about the same. UK is a little higher at 33%. And yet here's health, one of the most personal things, you know, one of the things that should be customer centric. So how should healthcare and specifically stakeholders in biopharma think about course correcting this experience? I think one of the things that uh, I would like to talk about the, the U.S. healthcare system is, needless to say, a lot of innovation is happening here that is important for the whole world on how to improve our healthcare. But we have to figure out how we make what we have come up with really accessible to people, which means we do need to look at the issues of cost. And I don't have an answer to that because I'm not a health economist, but for sure, one of the things that will make a difference there is if we do use digital tools where we can use digital tools or we use data to make better decisions about how we should use the limited resources we actually do have. So I think it is important that healthcare figure out how to embrace digital tools and help patients and others in the healthcare system understand why we all need to begin to move in the same direction. So that means figuring out what our purpose is and having some common sense of where we're trying to go so that we actually can use these tools in a way to solve problems that we all care about. I love that concept of a common purpose. And in fact, one of the things I find challenging about healthcare in general is that we have so much data, so much data available to us. And now you've got clinical decision support helping physicians. You've got patients who have uh, ability to, to gather some of this data on their own. You know, you talked about data. You mentioned data-informed a moment ago. So how should we think about data-driven versus data-informed in health? 
I think the, the issue of data informed as opposed to data driven is that really we have to make judgment calls in, in, in healthcare all along the way. And frankly, we need to take into account ethical considerations and be proactive about those. And data aren't really necessarily, data can help us figure out you know, where maybe things aren't going the way we'd like for them to go or remind us or give us feedback on, the, on what's really happening out, out there as opposed to what we think with different patient groups, et cetera. But having said that, that's not going to help us really make the choices that need to be made. And those are tough choices. So data informed just tells us that we want to collect data and not simply rely on our own experience or own expertise because it's always limited. We're going to have to work with others. And if we can get that, that one source of truth and how to think about the data that way so that we all are looking at the same information to try to make decisions together, that will help us collaborate more. But of course, we need to make sure that the people who are quote, deciding what data are really relevant or collecting the data or whatever, all, all of that whole process, there's so many ethical concerns to be looked at there. So again, I don't think we want to act like the data is going to give us the answer. The data is really going to just augment our understanding of the circumstances and how to define the problem, what we're trying to get done, but really not give us those, uh, the, the hard, help us, it's going to help us make the decisions, but we, I think, are going to have to use our ingenuity and our basic humanity about what we think is right about how healthcare should happen. So I think that it's the combination of the data, the data informing us, but we actually on our own understanding that we have to figure out what that purpose is, what we're trying to do really, and then what does it mean about how we move and, and deal with some of the choices we're gonna to have to make. Last time we talked, actually, you were bringing up how the burden of um, burnout is is uh, just racing across healthcare providers. And one of the things that this data could provide an answer to is allowing people to focus on that human decision point at the end, right? Practice to the top of my license and and remove some of the noise of, of all the data that's around us. Um, you know, you, you've got stories about this burnout and what it's doing. You know, the burnout is, is tremendous. And actually... I think the burnout is, is being caused for a number of reasons. One of them, of course, obviously has to do with just the amount of work that had to be done to get us through COVID. But the other reason, I think, is that we actually need to, people are losing a sense of why they're doing what they're doing. And there is so much pressure on people to do things in the healthcare system, for instance, in a hospital. There's so much pressure to do things in a way that actually are cost efficient, but really in for many people who are delivering that healthcare sort of is being translated into, I'm not supposed to spend as much time with the patient, which goes completely against the, the humanity of people. So I think what we need to think about more is how do we design these tools to really fit and create the kind of experience, for instance, that healthcare workers want to have in their interactions with patients and take that into account more as we're thinking about how we're going to deploy these tools. Because in the end, if you want to create a certain kind of end-to-end -end patient experience, you have to create a certain kind of end-to-end, -end, if you will, healthcare worker experience. And I don't know that there's enough attention being paid to that experience and how those tools are affecting their day-to-day -day work about what they really care about most. And that is, they care deeply about making sure that those patients get taken care of. And so the burnout comes when you feel like you can't do your job. You can't actually provide that human touch that that patient just needs for, uh, you know, those two more minutes. Uh, instead, what you often hear because of the way these things are designed is that, that you're spending your time, you know, making sure you get all your notes up on, on the computer so that, in fact, there can be billing done. Of course, that has to happen, but the more and more we get better at removing that kind of work because we have the right tools and really pay attention to how it affects the day-to-day -day of that 
healthcare worker, I think that we'll see, I think we'll see less burnout. You know, solving for these points of friction along the ecosystem, you mentioned the word collaboration. And, you know, it does take design thinking in a collaborative way by stakeholders across health in some cases to actually manage through the challenges that we're facing. You've talked a lot about this concept of creative abrasion. Can you use some, uh, tell us about some successful experiences you've seen in healthcare where, where, you know, individuals and, and groups are coming together? So creative abrasion is about the fact that when we really have to collaborate, we're going to have some conflict because really when you see innovative problem solving, what you see is that people with diverse points of view come together to figure out how should we solve this problem. So if you think about, I'm going to go back to the healthcare kind of setting, you think about the kinds of teams that have to come together to deal with a, a cardiac patient or whoever it might be, you have all these different different expertise, different people, there are different points of view and worries about what needs to happen with the patient. So what you see, though, is unless you actually take full advantage of those perspectives, they're all, st- they're all there in the room, if you will. But are you really hearing what everyone is thinking? So in terms of creative abrasion, what I've seen in many hospital settings is they really are trying to break down some of the hierarchy. Now, you do need to know, everybody needs to know who's going to make the decision because you want to be clear about these things and in a hospital setting. But you want to also do your decision-making in a way that is more inclusive. And so what I have seen is that they actually do take turns and go around the room, if you will, and let people speak. Now, just because you create the opportunity doesn't mean I'm really going to tell you what I'm thinking. So you do have to work work as a leader to create that kind of psychological safety. So what tends to create that, one is that we do all have a very, a, a real clear sense of purpose. The other is that we actually do respect that everyone has a point of view that deserves to be heard. doesn't matter how senior or how junior. So as you know, we talk about everybody having a slice of genius. We learned this from a leader. Everyone in the organization has talents. Everyone has passions. If you don't believe that, they shouldn't be in your organization. Once you've decided they're in your organization, then your key responsibility as a leader is to amplify those talents and passions and then figure out how to harness them for the collective good. So I think that with creative abrasion, what we see is that the leaders ask questions. So one CEO's, uh, CEO of a major company said, I realized I had a coach who counted how many times I made a statement and how many times I asked a question. And guess what? The balance wasn't where it needed to be. And so then we came up with four questions that I probably should ask most of the time. What did you learn? How did you learn it? What else do you need to learn? How can I help? Those were the four questions. And the leader literally practiced just saying those questions as opposed to usually doing what he was feeling very stressed with, making statements that really cut off everybody else. Because once the boss says this is what what he thinks or she thinks or they think, believe me, everybody else will think the same way unless you've really created this environment of psychological safety where they're willing to challenge you. That's very empowering. It does require patience. It requires time. It requires the, the, the true purpose, like you said, and desire to want to bring that differential point of view to the table. How do we do that now if you think about across the aisle in health, you know, whether it's here in the U.S. trying to solve for a local ecosystem health equity challenge or whether it's, you know, globally trying to work with the government on a population health initiative. Now you've got multiple stakeholders who need to have that patience and that time to hear each other out. Well, the good news about it is that actually you get faster and better at it with practice. So once you start doing it, you know, it's slow in the beginning, but it's an investment that pays off. So I, I, I mentioned very briefly earlier, I, I studied um, Meg Whitman when she became the CEO of eBay. And eBay was one of, obviously was the company that in many ways taught us how to all shop online. 
And one of the things she said is, you know what, basketball te- a good basketball team, I usually don't use team analogies, but good basketball team practices working together. <laughs> they practice. And we need to practice speaking the truth to each other. So part of what they also did, and actually in a healthcare setting, very similarly, they came up with a common language to talk about, in terms of this abrasion, about risk. And they had a red, yellow, green. So red was something that was very complex, and green was something that wasn't so complex. And they agreed that, you know, red, yellow, green. At first, no one even wanted to have a red project, because you didn't want to call your your project complex, interestingly enough. Red just didn't look good. So they eventually developed their own case law about red, yellow, green, and complexity. And they all began to understand, once you said and told people your project was complex, then guess what? People needed to help you pull the pieces apart and really look at the risks that come with complexity. So once people said, you know, this is complex, then everybody felt more comfortable weighing in and saying the pros and the cons. It can't all be good. It can't all be right because this is so complex. And so they had to kind of trick themselves into being able to have conversations about what their worries were by sort of talking about complexity, which really became their code word for risk. And then people would talk about, you know what, I see these risks. Because what often happens is that people literally don't raise the risk. They don't talk about the cons because they wanted to get it done, so they only tell you the positives. But if you had to start all the conversation by saying, I'm getting ready to talk to you about a red project, then everybody's listening. That means pay attention. That's what they all said red means. And I'm going to tell you what I see. And then if it's that com- what makes it complex? And the way in talking about what made it complex, fundamentally you were revealing what made it risky. Mm-hmm. what some of the issues were, some mm. of the cons were, so that other people could weigh in. So they had to come up with a language that was a little bit of a euphemism, but actually not a bad one, because complexity is often related to risk. And But they went through the process, and they had their own case law over time that these kinds of projects end up being read. They also began to develop a sense of who needed to be in the room if you were talking about a red project that looked like that. So I have to say, in terms of creative abrasion, they didn't want to call it conflict. Instead, it was this diagnosis of you know, the complexity of what they were working on and therefore the risks associated with it. Because the word risk, the word conflict, all of those things were words they didn't like. And so they, they had another way of doing it that worked for them. And they really got better. And we, could, we, were, we were assessing their creative abrasion over time. And they got really, really better at it. And it made a huge difference. And they would all tell you this in how they, they were able to, 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 to deliver their... Um, it was a pharmaceutical company, how they were able to actually get their work done in a way that met the needs of patients. Wow. Having that nomenclature of the complex problem that suspends judgment, it immediately opens up empathy to what you're dealing with. It also kind of assumes a positive intent then of everyone in the room being able to, to genuinely listen. And as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking of healthcare as a whole as this one big complex red project. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, you, thank you for that analysis. I haven't even been able to step back and think exactly that. It was, it was brilliant to me about how they, how they did that. The other thing that's interesting that, I mean, creative abrasion, I think people don't like conflict and they, and they like to be nice. And the other, the other piece of it in healthcare is expertise really does matter. You know, you want a specialist for this, for that. We also need to develop people who are actually specialists who are also generalists. So being more T-shaped. And one of the things that I've been seeing in pharma and also in hospital settings is have people do secondments where they actually work in different roles so they can really see what the work looks like from another point of view. And that also makes them, when, in, in all fields, actually, when you become more T-shaped, you can use your expertise better. 
but you're, you're curious, you're open-minded, you have a better sense of what that reality is for the people you're trying to work with. So when you, you talk about the global pieces I was mentioning, I just came back from being at the UN in, G in Geneva, and we were looking at how to improve the prosperity of people in conflict-torn countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, etc. And, you know, here I, I must say I was blown away by the complexity of what we were trying to deal with because I'm usually dealing with businesses, and that seems fairly simple. But healthcare is so at the heart and wellness, actually, healthcare in the sense of not just that's the other thing I think it's going to drive us in a positive way. In at least in this country, we need to have more of that wellness focus on, and, as opposed to fixing illness approach. The preventative medicine, which you know we are not as strong at as in some other countries, and I think that that you see that that move happening as people look at. I'm, I'm moving to a slightly different topic, but if you think about people, the whole uh, concern about mental health and how that is truly becoming a problem. We've been going back to the burnout that we talked about more broadly. Children who are having issues, et cetera. I think our country is, I hope, uh, not we didn't want this, maybe the silver lining is that we're beginning to see people more holistically, their mental health, their physical health, and how these go together, and how not only with our patients, but also with our healthcare workers, because with COVID, we all became patients. So I think the empathy, and to some extent, uh, that, that, and the connectedness and the interdependency of we all have around the world, not that we've solved the problem, does make us more open to sort of listening and learning about what's happening in another country. Because, I, I mean, in the U.S., if you don't think that the disease that's, you know, that gets developed in some country that you never heard of, and I'm saying it that way because I've heard people say it that way, that is going to end up affecting your life in your community. I think people kind of get that nowadays. I don't know that isolation is really a possibility, even though some might want to think that that can do it. So I think that that interdependence will make us see the common uh, humanity, the common issues we have to deal with that are very fundamental to to our well-being. I mean, just basic, to being alive, frankly. I think we it's just staggering to think about how many people have actually died you know, in the last couple of years. I, it's staggering if you just step back and think about that. If that can't move us to figure out how to be a little bit more collaborative, I'm not sure what will. What will. I, yes. It's uh, absolutely on a global scale. You know, to your point about prevention and wellness, one of the things on the stage this morning I was saying is we've been doing um, a program with Harris Poll running um, massive waves of, of research against uh, citizens in the U.S. and in six other countries um, and their doctors and trying to understand really where are they, where were they a year ago, where are they now, and what are they thinking about in health and connected care. And... Um, 72% of Americans want a system focused on prevention. And in our latest wave, interestingly, we saw an uptick in reporting of healthier habits and behaviors overall, like paying more attention to my sleep, to my exercise, to my mental health, to, you know, all the things that we would hope to see. So there's some alignment kind of coming together in, in those facets. Now, but... Um, you know, you talk about experience and employee experience and all. When, when we look at the experience they're having of health, uh, U.S. adults are half as likely to say they feel cared for, heard, or empowered as their doctors think they do, think they are. And, you know, you, you kind of see then um, what's happening is 44% of people will avoid care till they're sick. 29% no longer have a primary care doctor, um, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And so, 
experience matters. It really matters at the patient level, not just at the global level. No, for sure. And I think that, you know, that the fact that that's, I, I, I don't know the healthcare system like you do, so you would know better than I do, but I, I do know people in my life, you know, who are close to me, et cetera, who don't go to their physician because of cost, as you said, inconvenience. But they literally will say, I can't afford this. Or the number of people I have met in my own life who don't take the full dose that the doctor has told them they're supposed to take of a medication because they can't afford that medicine. And these are intelligent, hardworking people, right? Right. And I'm like, well, I don't think, are you sure that it works if you only take half of it? You know, whatever. As when I, when I try to ask questions, figure it out. So there's something that's quite broken about that. And obviously it's too expensive for yeah. many people. And I, and that's, that's a, that, that piece of it is there. I think the wellness and the energy piece is, again, I think that people have, I, I don't know what's happening. I think we are in a transition state right now, but th- there's no such thing as business as usual, and I don't know what we're going to go back to. But I think people have been reminded on some level, either consciously or unconsciously, about what really matters in life these last few years, and wellness is one of them, and you don't want to be sick or have to go to the doctor. I do think that what the, the disconnect probably is is that our medical care system is set up to really doctors deal with you when you are ill, not when you are well, right? And until doctors deal with us as a whole, making you know our health be what it needs to be so we can have the kinds of lives we want to have, we, we, we frame that in the mind of the doctor. The doctor is not simply there to fix you, if you will, but to help you live a better life then we're not going to see that shift. Now, I'm one of the lucky ones who has a spectacular doctor who is very much very pro-health, you know, health, what are you doing? Now, mind you, I don't always do what I'm supposed to do, but has, that, has the orientation that would make you want to go see her. I have a dentist who's that way. I actually like to go to my dentist and my doctor. I'm quite spoiled. <laughs> but what I realized is, as, as I mentioned earlier, I was actually in a trial, which is why I'm alive today. And I remember when I was very, very sick, I was in the hospital for a month, I certainly, one of the things the doctor told me is you don't remember pain, and you actually don't, which is interesting. You remember that you did have pain, but you don't feel it. You can't call it. We call it, the nurses were absolutely critical to my care, absolutely critical. And the home care I got, so I was very happy to hear that I actually had access to this when I left the hospital. The doctor wanted me out of the hospital as quickly as possible because he didn't want me to get an infection. I had, because of what I was, I was very prone to infection. But my doctor literally... And this wasn't just me. He didn't, do it for, uh, he didn't do it for everybody. He couldn't necessarily. He asked me, where do you live? It turns out I didn't live far from him. He literally came to my house. Oh, Imagine wow. this. This is a world specialist. He came to my house to see what was actually happening in my home. And he came and spoke to my husband, who's a physician, about the fact that he needed to be my husband and not my physician. And imagine this kind of, from a, I mean, a world-class doctor That's from the amazing. Brigham, because he, he didn't have as many patients. I, had a, I have a rare condition, and he wanted to understand what my circumstances were. And I have to say, you know, that, was, that is why I'm here today, not just the medicines that I got, but the way I was taken care of by my physician and my nurses. The nurses play such a critical role, and if they're burned out, we got problems because they're the ones who actually do provide you with that, that extra care. So I was spoiled, is what I'm saying, and I'm not expecting that we can all get that. But as a consequence, I, I do trust my doctor. I do have a relationship with his whole practice that is very different than what most people get access to. And I think that 
what we need to provide for all the people, all the actors, if you will, the patient and the people who, who serve them is an opportunity to be the kinds of, to provide the kinds of relationships and experiences they would like to be able to provide to, because they would, that is their intention. And I do think that we need to, again, as we're thinking about these tools, how do we augment the experiences of all the different parties who take care of an individual so that, in fact, we can all be our best selves in the way we want to be as a physician. I mean, some physicians maybe don't have a good bedside manner or whatever it is, but however you want to play it out. But they all really, I don't, I mean, I know many, I think they're there to be helpful to us, but they don't actually know how to talk to us. They're not trained to talk to us about our health in a positive way. They're trained to deal with us when we're sick. And this doctor, he, he um, very, very, deep, very respected. He said, you know, it takes a whole family to take care of a sick person. He told me that when I was in the hospital. So I'm, I'm going to start working on your family. Wow. Imagine. Wow. I had a baby. How's he doing? It, it was... He asked me those kinds of questions. How do you think about life? How do you think about what do you want What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your family after this illness? The man, I mean, we had these conversations. How do you think about death? What, tell me about it. What, what, what impacts you? What's your religion? I mean, it was, it was so, um, I was in the hospital for a month, so we had to have different conversations. And then it was three years of very serious treatments. But I have to say, just those questions and those moments in a, you know, in a medical, in a, an academic medical center where this man is really doing the cutting edge work, it, it, we all should have, particularly if we're sick, if we need that. But his whole practice, actually, when you're not so sick, they call you if you don't show up for stuff, right? They have the, they have a whole system. You didn't show up, Linda. You get your note. Now, mind you, now, thanks to digital, I get my little message from the Brigham <laughs> patient gateway, right? In and advance. It, yep. And it pops up. It keeps <laughs> popping up until I finally answer it, right? So I think that, I don't know that I'm, I'm talking, this is a podcast, I'm talking rather personally about it, but I do think that healthcare is personal. It is. It's quite personal. And there's no way, it, you have to design all of this to allow for our humanity to come out in all of us. And otherwise, you're not going to, people are going to be afraid to go. You're always afraid to go to the doctor. Yeah. Doesn't matter anyway, right? Even if you're healthy or you're just going for your checkup, you're worried. So this is an anxiety provoking experience. Um, and they and the people who are caring for you are trying to, to help you with that and help you make good choices in life, which of course we don't always. I don't. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't do all that. And she never. She doesn't yell at me or fuss at me or anything. But I think it's also about the way we need to educate people and how. The last thing I'd like to say on that, and I, I feel like I am rambling. I'm on my way to a metaverse conference, mm. and I'm on the at a, an advisory committee to a group called CalIT2 at the University of California, San Diego, and California, and the University of California, Irvine. They're now training physicians to work with the software engineers, et cetera, to help both do the design of digital tools and design of data systems, as well as be able to use those. And they're doing it in a wellness context. Oh, wow. So I know when I was there the last time, it was before COVID, they were going to look at how they were looking at apartment buildings and condo complexes and how to actually design living spaces 
And they had yoga teachers and everything working with the doctors and working with the software engineers to think about designing a healthy community. Oh, wow. So there's some wonderful <laughs> experiments that are going on right now. And it was very multidisciplinary. They, they, they look at all kinds of areas, not just healthcare. But the healthcare piece of it was particularly fascinating to me. I, I want to talk more about that. But first, Linda, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story. That was well, amazing to hear. And, and Thank you. I, I was blessed. It's the only way you and can describe here. it. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this metaverse, you know, I, I have gotten questions. I've gotten questions <laughs> from, from folks saying, okay, what is the role of life sciences mm-hmm. in the metaverse? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, that, I'm, I'm still learning about that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I've been actually looking at the metaverse a bit more in financial service, in the financial services industry than I have in just because of the research I've been doing than I have with healthcare. But the one thing I have seen in the pharmaceutical companies, I did see the use of um, 3D to do training and education of pharmacists to actually deliver for trials. So for sure, I am seeing that as there to sort of make sure that it's, particularly as the trials get become more complex as you move towards more precision medicine, and you know the dosages are very um, are much more complicated that you're actually giving out in these various trials. So they're trying to use more metaverse kinds of tools to make sure that people understand exactly how to store medications, um, deliver those medications to patients, et cetera. So I've certainly seen wow. it, that happening. And um, in fact, was allowed to put on the. I was a little dizzy. Put these on to move around. Apparently, I don't know if you know this, but women actually are um, have more trouble with those uh, Simulators I guess those, those that, glasses yeah. and everything than men do. They don't yeah. really understand why. And going back to collaboration, the there's a collaboration between pharmaceutical companies and defense contractors and entertainment industry executives to, I guess, software engineers and things to really figure out what how to solve that problem. They've decided to work across the industry. They're not competitive to figure out why it is that women have more trouble. Can we do that on women's health now, too? Yep, that's what, yep. (laughs) I will tell you the strangest, this is a little off point, but actually relevant. The other place where I do see the metaverse is obviously simulations to actually um, test out, to play out different scenarios about how certain, um, not only, not just medications, but also, um, I guess, devices that you might, medical devices might be used to get things done. Certainly the use of... uh, and that's going to, some of that's in the metaverse. So the, the thing I was going to tell you that really going, that amazed me, and I am on the board of uh, Relay Therapeutics, a biotech company in precision medicine. But so I try to, try to follow what's happening. So I was back to my visit to California to this group that I work with. It turns out, and I may not have this exactly right, so maybe <laughs> I shouldn't say this at this time, but I want to say going back to women's health, it turns out that most trials have been run, I guess, on male rats. You know, you start with the animal models and yep. then you move. Yes. And they don't use female rats. So from the beginning. <laughs> from the beginning. So I'm at, I'm listening to this research, you know, and I'm thinking, what? So yeah, they do it on male rats. And okay, why? So it turns out it's because the women, you know, because of our hormonal shifts, you don't know when the I guess the women, the female rat is at where she is in her cycle when she's getting these various, you know, trials, these medications or whatever you're trying out. 
It turns out that someone finally did the research and found out that the hormonal levels in the systems of men actually move more, are more volatile than those of females. Really? Of, of, of not men, of, of, of male rats <laughs> than female rats. They just learned this. Now, after yes, all this time. after all this time. So it turns out, you know, they can do these studies on female rats too. I, could you, I had no idea that most of this work was only done on male rats. We do know that clinical trials are primarily dominated by men. Oh, no, um, I knew that. They, but no, I did not know about the rats. No, it happens at the level <laughs> of the rat. No, I mean, I know that. I mean, I uh, am involved in some efforts to try to make sure we have more diversity in the people who are actually absolutely. in trials. Obviously, yeah. women, people of color, et cetera. I did not know it happened at the animal, I did not know that. The animal model level as they, they described to me. Seems like an easy fix. <laughs> well, they, they just, they, they, it was an assumption. Yeah. That has now been tested, thinks data, let them realize someone actually looked and found out that no, our systems are not any more volatile. I guess wow. I'm not a female rat, but anyway, than then the male version. Yes. Wow. So one of the things pharma overall is doing is stepping back and looking at legacy assumptions and processes. Mm -hmm. And they, many of my clients are going through digital transformations right now, trying to shift the culture, shift the way we work every day in our business and, you know, shift how our employees think around data and how we use data every day. Um, You've talked a little bit about the emotional side of digital transformation and that there's the people who are driving it and the people who have to absorb and adapt. And I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that because just like change in general, sometimes it's everyone and no one's problem. Yes. <laughs> so one of the examples, I, I was talking about Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. They have gone through uh, digital transformation. And actually, I think from talking to other people who've looked at the hospital, they're very advanced. Now, when they put up together their, their digital transformation team, and I can't recall exactly what it, was, what it was called, they at the same time put together an organizational effectiveness team. And those two teams worked together very closely. And on that organizational effectiveness team, I believe there were 19 coaches who were skilled at EQ, emotional intelligence coaching. So they had both this, you know, the digital people and this organizational effectiveness group that worked together to deliver and think about what the experience needed to be of individuals going through this digital transformation. And I will tell you, for instance, it ended up, and one of the things we've been able to do some research on, is that they gave visualization tools, data visualization tools, to the nurses. And the nurses began to do A-B experiments. They taught them how to do them. And they used, they were doing so many A-B experiments to figure out how to improve the effectiveness of their, you know, whatever ward or whatever they were responsible to, that the senior management began to have to have a discussion about, do we need to put some discipline on this? <laughs> too many tests. Uh, too many tests. They're like running tests every which place. And not only that, they were calling the digital team, yeah. which, two-way communication as opposed to what, you, you know, the question, and saying, you know what, I, I wish my dashboard had this and not that. Why did you put this here? Why not put... So they actually became empowered to have conversation with the digital team. Now, again, that's expensive talent, et cetera, and you actually do want some standardization over time. Yeah. But just the fact, and the senior man, well, do we stop this? I forget <laughs> that's how many. That's a good problem to have. It was, yeah. So, and they actually, you know, again, I, I would say if you are doing, going back to the experience in the digital, turns out those visualization tools make a huge difference in whether people adopt the use of data. Wow. And I, I don't remember which one. I think they... I guess I, should, I shouldn't be selling one or the other, but I've seen different different tools. So as soon as you give them that and they can see the pictures and visualize what it means, yep, they had all kinds of thoughts about uh, you know, how things could be better. 
So something you said there about empowerment, because many organizations, um, leaders think that they're empowering the next level down. But what we see is, you know, yes, we, we're transforming to a digital company. The next layer is then, you know, getting it loosely involved and, you know, or, or, or part of specific work streams. But then when you start going down the chain, you know, the people who should be empowered on the ground to use that data to make those decisions, um, they often don't feel it or they don't no. act on it, even if they say they feel it. So what, what's going on there? <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of things going on there. One is that one of the things we've seen in many organizations is if I'm not a technical person, then I don't think digital really relates to me. Ah, yes. Literally, right? So, or just like, you know, who's supposed to in- innovate? And for us, innovation is anything that's new and useful to the organization. It can be more incremental. It can be more breakthrough. It can be about execution, whatever. So when you see organizations where they are using these tools, basically people have been told, you also have a role to play in solving the problems around here for our customer or our patient. So one is that the mindset of the individual is one of, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this. And so we talk about whether or not someone is being a value creator or a game changer. And we, we need to be both. A value creator is someone who knows how to address the should. This is something we should be doing on my, or whatever it is, you know, this is my job, I should be doing it. A game changer is someone who's thinking about what we could be doing, identifying those opportunities and trying to close them. So what we see in organizations where you see digital being um, absorbed and used more, embedded more, is that the people throughout the whole organization understand that they're supposed to be doing shoulds and coulds, be value creators and game changers. Now, that doesn't mean you you, you got to always do what you should do, but you have some opportunity to think about what you could do. And so as a consequence, they, they are doing this innovative problem solving. So in this, in, at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, the nurses were told, you know, you are supposed to deal with shoulds and coulds. So they thought, oh, how do I find out what the coulds are? Well, they were given some access to some digital tools, some data, how to do some visualization, taught how to run A-B rigorous, relevant experiments, and they, they had problems they wanted to solve so they could meet the needs of their patients and their communities. It, interesting, in that, in that particular hospital, I think they had something like 87 nationalities working wow. because Abu Dhabi is a place with many, many expats, right? And they all, it, with that kind of population, you saw that kind of yeah. use. It went all the way down, but it was really because the top of the house had the mindset and wanted everyone to have the mindset that you have a role to play. So you may not know it, but at Cleveland Clinic, um, in all the Cleveland Clinic system, anyone who works in the hospital is called a caregiver. Oh, no, I didn't know Anybody, that. Yeah. right? So consequently, here's the whole mindset, right? Okay, everybody's a caregiver. doesn't matter what you're doing in the hospital. It's like so, Disney. Everyone's a cast member. Exactly. <laughs> so if I'm a caregiver, yep. you know, I work in the kitchen, I'm a caregiver. And you have that whole, that I have a contribution to make to the care of people. So that is what, I mean, if you didn't have that kind of there, that feeling and that belief, then I don't know, even though they were kind of frightened by these tools and what this digital all meant, they knew that they needed to use whatever they had access to to help to be value creators and game changers because they're caregivers. So I think that that's, that's really, that culture is a very important piece of why they did this. But I think in many organizations, Frankly, they're the digital people and the non-digital people. Right. They're the innovators and the non-innovators, right? You're the innovator. I'm an executor. I do what you tell me. As opposed to we're collaborating to figure out what tools will enable you to do a better job for the customer, which is how that digital group was set up. 
And to just be sure, they had the organizational effectiveness people who were paying attention to the people side, you know, not just the task side to work along with, with the digital team to make sure that that translation happened. It was a lot of hard work. That's a lot of hard work. And I know you've said it takes several years sometimes to make it happen. But what I'm hearing, <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm a leader in a biopharma company, it's not just about saying this is where we're going. It's about everyone knowing they're part of that. Everyone understanding shoulds and coulds by also not just telling them, but giving them visualization that allows them to see the art of the possible mm -hmm. and then giving them the rain to actually go off and try and do and, and, and have that environmental risk kind of, you know, curved in the culture um, so that they can actually experience that and drive forward. Yeah. And the thing I, you're wonderful at what you're doing. Yeah, I, you need, we need to write a book together. <laughs> I think the thing that I really want to be clear about is obviously there are compliance issues, there are safety issues, so the guardrails, yes. we haven't really talked as much about that because that is an important piece of the puzzle. It is. That everybody knows, again, you know, this is th these are the boundary conditions under which you're, you're doing this, and this is who really makes certain kinds of decisions. So I want to be real clear that these systems do have constraints, do have guardrails, rules, but they're a little, they're more flexible. They're not, I don't know if they're, some of them are not so negotiable. I was talking to someone in pharma who said, you know, I go out to Silicon Valley and they talk about fail fast. If a person, in, you know, a regular later heard us talking about failing fast, no, that can't be a part of our culture. It's not fail fast anyway, it's learn fast. It's learn fast, yes. Right, yeah. and manage those risks. So, yeah, so so again, we the leaders who are doing this, they, they do, it's, it's much more conversational than a rule book, I guess, is what I, as I listen to you about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Right. And again, if we're working collectively and we have that common understanding of some of those boundaries, then that allows us to know we can work within this space and everybody knows when you're getting out of that space. But if you haven't created that common culture and those, that sense of boundaries, again, when you go to delegate or you empower, a little dangerous. Yeah, you got to strike the right balance. Yep, because empowerment really is giving people the opportunity to exercise influence. You have the potential to have influence when you empower someone. And the best way to empower people is to give them, in some ways, expertise, to give them knowledge so they know that is a source of power. That, that, and that is the power that you want them to be using to make some of the choices they're making. And, and the other piece, I guess, is if you're customer-centric, going back to why, you know, how do you embed this down the levels or across the the nation or the globe that does take time which is why it's not it is harder to build trust build a sense of community when as we all have discovered with working high in hybrid virtual situations even you know if you're all in the same town but you're not in the same office anymore um it is harder to build to build trust it is harder to build uh, we, we can see that already to build that sense of community and for people to understand those um sort of informal rules that really guide our behavior and our understanding about what's appropriate and what's not, those yeah. are harder to put in place when you have distance. So I think, um, you know, I think we're, we're learning more about that uh, faster than we intended to probably. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the results of that uh, I don't know. I'm, I mean, we're all learning about yeah. that. But, I mean, I, I am hearing more and more from companies that the capacity to collaborate is impacted by sure. hybrid work, right? And therefore, the capacity to innovate is probably impacted as well. So I think we have to see how this will all play out over time. 
to keep getting creative, I yes. think. Yeah. So how do we stay connected? That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more question sure. for you. And this is a question that I asked all my guests. Oh. If you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? I, I think this is probably too big, but I, I would change um, who has access to healthcare. Can you the say access. more? Yeah. I, 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 you know, I had the privilege of sharing what was a personal experience for me, and I, I know that it ended up for a range of reasons being particularly special. But I, I, as we talked about, people who don't go to the doctor, who don't um, because they can't afford to or they're afraid to or it's inconvenient. So I, if I could change one thing, I would have more universal access. When I, when I did that project in Germany now many years ago, it turns out in part I was working with some people from the Green Party there. Um, when Germany, when the wall came down, the healthcare costs in Germany just went way up. And they also, what I was looking at is they were trying to figure out how to do, how to figure out who should get transplants. And what the thing that struck me is how in Germany, they really felt they had to come up with a system that was fair to everybody because everybody needed to have equal access. And that was so refreshing and so inspiring to me in a way that I actually don't hear so much in my own country. So I think access is what I would would wish would wish. For, it's an for amazing all of us. answer, and it's and it's you're right. It's health. There's nothing more personal than health. It is a right and an opportunity for all of us to do better on access. Yes. So that would be it. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. joining me. Thanks so much, Linda, for joining me today. And thanks for listening to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. We invite you to subscribe and leave an iTunes review. And to learn more about ZS's connected health research, visit zs.com slash future of health. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Please visit zs.com slash future of health if you're interested in learning more about transforming biopharma and ZS's industry perspectives.